Hello, friends, and welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. Friends, as you know, we're a nonprofit, and we rely on your support to put on wonderful programs like this. And I'm thrilled to share that we are launching an exciting crowdsourcing campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar that you give to support the We the People and Live at the NCC podcasts will be matched one to one up to a total of $234,000 to celebrate the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the Constitution. You can go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people, and it would be wonderful if you could give any amount, $5, $10 or more, to signal your membership in this meaningful community of lifelong learners and your support for the programming that makes it possible. Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. From John Milton to Mercy Otis Warren and Phyllis Wheatley, poets have had a long-lasting impact on America's constitutional ideals. How did these poets, and poetry in general, influence the U.S. Constitution? Who were the poetic influences on the founders, and how were the founders themselves poets? And how is the Constitution itself a poem? To discuss the intersection of poetry and the Constitution, we convened a panel of experts. Our guests are Vincent Coretta, editor of the Penguin Classics edition of the Complete Writings of Phyllis Wheatley and Professor Emeritus of English at the University of Maryland, Eileen M. Hunt, Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame and author of Artificial Life After Frankenstein, and Eric Slaughter, Associate Professor and Director of the Carlo Scherer Center for the Study of American Culture at the University of Chicago, and author of The State as a Work of Art, The Cultural Origins of the Constitution. Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on December 8th, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Wow, so looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Vincent Coretta, Eileen Hunt, and Eric Slaughter. This is a dream team of scholars uh, who can illuminate the important and often unexplored connections between poetry and the Constitution. Professor Slaughter, let's begin with you. You have that book with a wonderful title, The State is a Work of Art, The Cultural Origins of the Constitution. Um, We're here to discuss poetry And among the poets cited by the founders, according to Donald Lutz's article from a few years ago, the second most cited poet was Alexander Pope after Shakespeare. There was Shakespeare, Pope, and then Milton. And many of the founders quoted Pope, including Abigail Adams, who regularly quoted or paraphrased uh, Pope to substantiate admissions she made to her children. Um... She encouraged her young son, John Quincy Adams, to be virtuous, uh, reminding him that an honest man is the noblest work of God. Uh, She regularly cited Pope's dictum that order is heaven's first law. And she was constantly invoking, as so many of the founders did, a distinction that Pope repeated often between reason and passion and the need to use our powers of reason to moderate or temper our ruling passion. Tell us about Alexander Pope and why he was among the most cited poets of the founding era. Well, thank you so much for for having me and for um, uh, launching this discussion. I'm thrilled to talk about Pope, but just as a kind of um, prologue or preamble, it strikes me that there are maybe three ways uh, in which we could think about the Constitution and poetry. I'll sort of work my way up to Pope. So the first way is to be thinking about the Constitution considered as a poem, which is a a kind of perdurable strain in both the culture and in the scholarship around the Constitution. There was a book not 10 years ago um, by Garrett Epps called American Epic, which argued that, you know, the preamble itself was a kind of of poem. It would not be difficult, I think, um, although it might not be so pleasurable, to put together a small anthology of poems by important framers. Almost every a multi-volume edition of the papers of the Founding Fathers. The first volume inevitably has uh, one or two poems. We could look at, say, the committee on style and arrangement of the federal convention and you know, note that James Madison 
uh, Alexander Hamilton, Gouverneur Morris, um, all uh, produced verse, um, some of it doggerel. And Benjamin Franklin even went so far as to talk about in his autobiography the effect of writing poetry on his verbal facility throughout his life. So we could talk about the constitution makers as poets, or we could even um, talk about the constitutional interpreters as poets. And here we might invoke someone like um, Joseph Story, one of the one of the key early members of the court, who, as a young man at the turn of the 19th century, published a 260-page poem called "The Power of Solitude." Um, the, the story is that later he was quite embarrassed by this and tried to suppress, buy up all the copies, um, but certainly they um, they circulated for a while. Uh, The second way we might think about this is about the Constitution's influence on poetry. And I think that's maybe one of the topics that my colleagues will be taking up. That's, you know, how did the Constitution shape American poetry from the age of Phyllis Wheatley and Mercy Owens Warren um, up through the age of Amanda Gorman? The third way and the way in which I think Pope is most relevant is to think about the poetic influence on the Constitution. And here we'd be interested not only in what framers wrote, but on what they read. Um, How did the reading of poetry prepare uh, people? How does it now prepare people for careers in law? As as an English professor at Chicago, one of my favorite quotations is by the late John Paul Stevens, who came to this campus in 1979 and said um, that the study of English literature, especially lyric poetry, was the best preparation uh, for the law, that there were certainly exportable or portable um, soft skills that one could use. And um, the ranking that you mentioned of who was most uh, most prevalent reminds me of a study done sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, around 2015 that ranked the current Supreme Court justices by the number of citations to literary texts. And here, Justice Scalia was dominant um, with something like 40 different citations to literary texts in something like 800 different opinions. But for me, what's most interesting is thinking about poetry as a vehicle for political thought in the 18th century. And here, Pope's essay on man, uh, which appeared it was perhaps the most reprinted, one of the most reprinted poems of the of the century. It was written in 1735, but uh, circulated quite widely um, in the age of the American Revolution. Something like 90 different uh, printings of it appeared between 1750 and 1800. A greater number appeared in the United States, the early United States, late British uh, colonial America. Um, than appeared in uh, England. And it was an extremely, I would say, conservative poem uh, written by a conservative poet in the 1730s, um, someone who had lots of opposition to the Walpole uh, uh, Whig regime. It was dedicated and written to a Tory politician named Henry St. John, Lord Bolingbroke. And it included all sorts of justifications of why the world was the way it was. So, you know, many of you will know some of its um, famous lines, hope springs eternal in the human breast, man never is, but always to be blessed know thyself, um, presume not God to scan, the proper study of mankind is man, uh, whatever is, is right. And it was uh, one particular line in this poem, for forms of government let fools contest, whatever is best administered is best. This was in many ways one of the most internalized um, aphorisms of political thought of the 18th century, and it irritated an international audience. Um, David Hume denounced it in an essay on the idea that politics could be reduced to science. Immanuel Kant um, dismissed it in his uh, work on perpetual peace. Um, John Adams denounced it in his thoughts on government. He said, Pope flatters tyrants too much when he says, um, you know, for forms of government, let fools contest. Hamilton called it a political heresy in the Federalist, Um, but it worked its magic, those lines, the divide between political form and political administration, and that any political form might be okay or acceptable as long as it was well administered. This was something that um, many argued against, and in the time of the framing, 
particularly anti-federalists who um, felt that they were being asked to uh, accept a political form that was to them unthinkable um, merely by being promised that it would be well administered. So we see, as you were saying, all of this, all of these citations of it. Um, Abigail Adams cites it. John Marshall transcribed the poem on uh, on the Virginia frontier in the early in the early 1760s. Uh, Daniel Webster is said to have gotten a copy, probably a very small, cheap printing like this one that was done at the end of the 18th century in in the small town of Rentham, Massachusetts. Um, and and to have committed it to memory. So there are many ways, I think, in which, you know, um, thinking about poetry as a vehicle for political thought, both for accepting political thought in the case of those who took Pope um, as axiomatic and as true dogma, um, and those who chose to argue against it. It was sort of an unavoidable aspect of late 18th century political culture that you would engage with this particular poem in some way. And I think, you know, that's maybe hard for us to to resurrect um, at this particular moment, but it was certainly, uh, I think, something that had a controlling influence. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction to the topic. You've just whet all of our appetite for so much more learning, including about the verse of the members of the Constitutional Convention. And it was just an important reminder of how central uh, the study of the humanities and of verse was to the moral and political sensibility of the founding. Professor Hunt, let's turn now to um, Phyllis Wheatley. She was, as Professor Henry Louis Gates uh, put it, the most famous African on the face of the earth, the Oprah Winfrey of her time. She was the first published African-American poet uh, brought in chains to America at the age of nine, where she acquired a classical education. And her poems were so famous in London that in 1772, a collection of Boston eminences, including John Hancock, held a trial to determine whether she'd in fact written her own poems. And after examining her in the classics, they concluded that she had indeed published them. And uh, she went on to publish much more. Tell us about this great genius how did she come to write these uh, superb poems? And what themes in her important poetry would you like to introduce our audience to? Thank you to that wonderful introduction to Wheatley. And I agree that with uh, the scholarship of Vincent Caretta that she was, in fact, a genius in bondage. The way I became introduced to the work of Phyllis Wheatley is through her peer in Boston, uh, Hannah Mather Crocker. Hannah Mother Crocker was born in 1752, just a year before Wheatley was born. Uh, and Hannah Mother Crocker uh, lived a long life. Uh, she lived to the year 1829. And in the 1820s, she wrote a history of Boston in which she talked about her friendship with Phyllis Wheatley. And it's quite touching the way that she records the life of Wheatley in her history of the city of Boston. Because as you point out, Jeff, uh, Wheatley was an international celebrity. Uh, and what, what Crocker does in her history of Boston, which was unpublished at her death, but I believe she intended to publish it had she been able to do so. What she does in her history of Boston is to frame Wheatley as a hero for the city of Boston as well and for the, for the, for the revolutionary era in which they both came of age. And so uh, what, what Crocker says about Wheatley is that she was, she was not treated as a slave in, in her families in the Wheatley household in Boston. Uh, she was freed very soon after being purchased, and she was treated as a member of the family. She also says that she was very highly educated in the family. And she showed herself to be a prodigy in Crocker's language very early, and her poetry was encouraged by the family. Uh, Crocker's father, Samuel Mather, was a, was a minister, um, the, the son of Cotton Mather, uh, the famous Puritan theologian and minister who was scandalized by the Salem witch trials. Uh, and Samuel Mather was involved in that trial of, of Wheatley, where they were judging whether she was, in fact, capable of producing this poetry herself. And he was one of the uh, Boston patriarchs who signed on to say, to confirm that she was indeed this prodigy uh, that her family believed her to be and that his own daughter believed her to be. Uh, and in the history of Boston, written by Hannah Mother Crocker as an elderly woman in the 1820s, uh, 
she recounts how Wheatley gave her copies of her poems. And uh, she includes uh, a snippet of Wheatley's poem on imagination, which I believe dates to 1773, if I'm correct. If you're familiar with this poem, it's, 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 it's a metaphysical poem about the nature of the imagination and the, the, the liberating power of the imagination to sweep away uh, the human mind from its present concerns. Uh, there's imagery of winter and, and how the imagination can be so powerful as to sweep us away from the, the weather itself. Uh, and she talks about how we can um, leave the rolling universe behind. We can range the realms above. And uh, there's been a lot of scholarship on this poem talking about how it's a metaphor for how people, even slaves, even the enslaved or people who have previously been enslaved, like Wheatley herself, can use the imagination to liberate themselves internally and perhaps externally. Because what Wheatley's life story shows us is that, in fact, a freed slave could liberate herself and rise to international intellectual stature. Um, later in her life, Wheatley went to London, I believe, to promote her poetry. But um, there's, a, there's a, a sad part of the story of Wheatley's life that Hannah Mother Crocker recounts. And as, as Vincent has noted in his scholarship, Hannah Mother Crocker is the only eyewitness to this story. Uh, and so her reminiscences and traditions in Boston is a really important source for understanding Wheatley's life. Uh, but what, what Crocker records is that one reason why Wheatley dies young at about age 30 may be that in Crocker's words, her husband did not treat her well. Uh, Vincent has recorded in his scholarship how um, her husband was in jail for, for debt for, for some period of time um, during the marriage. The marriage may have been troubled, uh, according to Crocker's account. We don't know exactly um, what the nature of the abuse was, but Crocker suggests there was abuse. Uh, and I think that as a feminist historian, I take Crocker's word very seriously. Uh, and I think there's a poignancy to Crocker recording the imagination poem in her history of Boston, because I think what Crocker is trying to say is that she hopes that her friend was ultimately able to liberate herself, at least internally, um, from the suffering that she faced in her life as a black woman and a freed slave. Wow. Thank you so much for that incredibly compelling introduction to the genius of Phyllis Wheatley and to her poem, Imagination. Professor Coretta, first of all, congratulations on the citation of the writings of Phyllis Wheatley by the Modern Language Association. In recognizing its excellence, the MLA said that you persuasively present Wheatley as an important early American writer who links the politics of liberty in the American colonies to the issue of race and slavery. Professor Hunt has put on the table her poem, Imagination. And I do want to just take the privilege of reading just a bit of it, because it's so meaningful to actually recite the primary text. This is Wheatley on the imagination. Such is thy power, nor are thine orders vain. O thou the leader of the mental train, in full perfection all thy works are wrought, and thine the scepter o'er the realms of thought. Before thy throne the subject passions bow, of subject passions sovereign ruler thou. At thy command joy rushes on the heart, and through the glowing veins the spirits dart. Ah, wonderful to read. Professor Coretta, please um, help put that and Phyllis Wheatley's other poems in context and tell us how Phyllis Wheatley in her poems explored the connection between liberty, slavery, virtue, and the imagination. Thank you for inviting me. When I was first invited to uh, participate on this panel, my initial reaction was, Phyllis Wheatley in the Constitution, well, she died in 1784 and years before the Constitution. So what would be the connection? Then I thought about it, and I looked uh, again at the preamble, we the people, and I thought about how often Phyllis Wheatley uses the first-person plural in her poetry to construct herself first as a kind of proto-national American voice, and eventually as a proto-poet laureate of the country in the making. And this starts really quite early in her career. Uh, certainly, uh, her poem to uh, George III, which she wrote in uh, 1768, she shifts to the we 
as if she is representing all Americans in addressing him and thanking George for repealing the Stamp Act. And the poem that brought her, of course, international fame, certainly transatlantic fame, was in 1770, her elegy on the death of the Reverend George Whitfield, in which she addresses ye Africans. Initially, she's talking about, she has a separation between white and African people, and that Christ is available to both. But by the end of the poem, she transitions when she addresses directly uh, Whitfield's patron, the Countess of Huntington. She says, we Americans, again, is establishing this identity as, as the spokesperson for Americans. In 1772, when she writes to Dartmouth, she includes a passage that explains why she can speak about slavery as she does, because she makes a transition from the rhetorical use that the American rebels or so-called patriots used to refer to themselves as enslaved by the British government, especially the British ministry, to talking about actual chattel slavery, the kind of slavery that Phyllis Wheatley herself experienced. And she talks about how her being captured in Africa gives her the authority to speak about slavery and implicitly, and, and to imply that there's a real slavery that her fellow Americans should recognize. And then in 1775, of course, she addresses, she writes a poem, sends a letter to George Washington. And this is where I would say she's, she's making claim to being a kind of proto- poet laureate for the America in, in the making. One thing we have to keep in mind with Phyllis Wheatley is that she's evolving. First of all, it's absolutely crucial to remember that she's doubly disenfranchised throughout her life as being a woman and as being a person of African descent. And so when she addresses George, uh, George Washington, it's going to conflate him with George III, and you'll see why in a moment, she ends the poem by predicting that he's going to have a throne, a mansion, and a crown because her concept of a political organization is still one of, of monarchy. And so when we try to imagine her and the Constitution, I think we need to think about the progress of this evolution that she may ultimately have evolved to take a position of what we would call a democratic position. But if we look at the Constitution itself, as uh, the historian David Wallstreicher reminds us in, in his slave, the book Slavery's Constitution, the Constitution is, is fairly pro-slavery. One can imagine how Phyllis Wheatley would have reacted to the the three-fifths clause, for example. This makes me think of W.E.B. Du Bois. It may seem like a strange leap. But in his pretty well-known essay on the Negro in art and literature, Du Bois refers to Phyllis Wheatley as the pioneer in the establishment of what we now call African-American literature. In a less-known essay, The Vision of Phyllis the Blessed, which he published in almost 30 years after his The Negro and the Art and Literature. He sees Phyllis having a vision of who is going to follow. And he's no longer thinking of her in literary terms, but in what we would call political theoretical terms, that he sees her as the founder of a political tradition that he refers to her as the thin flame that anticipates the red flame of David Walker. He says that she must have had a vision of David Walker coming. He even calls Paul Dunbar the reincarnation of Phyllis Wheatley. So Phyllis Wheatley, if we follow her career into the afterlife, into her afterlife, uh, she becomes very much uh, engaged with the Constitution. 
Well, that's just fascinating. And I'm so looking forward to your, your further thoughts and your uh, helping us understand the evolution of Phyllis Wheatley from a concept in which the monarchy is to be exalted to becoming a poet of liberation and anticipating David Walker is absolutely fascinating. I want to ask uh, Professor Slaughter, Professor Coretta just identified the shift from the uh, essential conservatism of Phyllis Wheatley writing about classical virtue to becoming a poet of liberation. And I wonder how other poets of the founding era manage that transition. We're going to talk about Mercy Otis Warren, who John Adams called the poetical genius of the revolution, whose poems about virtue and reason became poems in favor of revolution. And you whetted our appetite by noting the other, the founders who wrote poetry as well. So to what degree was there a connection, if any, between the, the classical sensibility of these poets and their constitutional politics? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and one we always ask about, say, uh, John Adams, right, about how his classical uh, education influenced his political thought. And I think it's really it it does behoove us to think more with someone like Wheatley. You know, just as a as a pendant to my last um, my last set of comments about Pope, one of the first books that um, Wheatley purchases on her own in London is a set, a nine volume set of Pope's works um, of which the essay on man would have been, I think in the third or, or, or fourth volume. Um, so she's somebody who I think a lot of scholarship um, early on sometimes dismissed uh, as merely a servile imitator of the kind of poetic form of Alexander Pope without being able to I think fully appreciate some of the political aspects that um, that uh, Eileen and, and Vin are both pulling out. For me, what's so curious and interesting about Wheatley is that attestation by prominent whites that Eileen mentioned. You know, does allude to the fact that she seems to have some classical learning, and you know, in her 1773 book, there's a a short translation um, from Ovid, from Ovid's Latin, of a, a poem about Niobe in distress, um, which is a you know very interesting, um, a very interesting topic uh, for an enslaved um, person. But one of the things that that I think the the recent scholarship, inspired by by Vin and others, has really brought out is the extent to which Wheatley is not just um, a kind of anomaly who's sitting very high, thinking only about imagination and producing um, translations of Latin uh, poems, but she has a kind of rhyme with unfree Africans in Boston at the time. Um, one of her m most circulated prose pieces is a letter that she wrote to Samson Occam, who was a Mohican uh, minister um, who had had achieved a kind of similar um, celebrity, particularly in a tour of Great Britain designed to generate revenue for um, the institution that would become uh, Dartmouth. What she says there is, you know, I'm thank you for your note and your vindication of the natural rights of the of of the unfree blacks. Um, you know, I think uh, the tide is turning and people are starting to see Africa differently. Um, but uh, there is still quite a lot of prejudice, and you know, our modern Egyptians may not want um, freedom for uh, for the enslaved, and our modern Egyptians is meant to to reference the, the sort of biblical exodus. Um, in, and in this case, you know, so many uh, American revolutionaries portrayed themselves through the, the kind of Hebrew Bible in this particular way, even to the point of wanting the seal of the United States to show dividing of the Red Sea and, and the journey to the promised land. And Wheatley really upends that um, in a kind of important and crucial way. Um, and in doing so, speaks in the language that a number of unfree Blacks are beginning to speak as they make formal petitions to the Massachusetts state legislature, the late colonial legislature at first, and then to the Massachusetts state legislature, asking for their own freedom by articulating claims about natural rights, um, claims that are circulating, as um, Vin mentioned, in very shrill ways uh, among white 
colonists or, or white early nationals. You know, so John Dickinson um, will say something like, you know, those who are taxed without their consent are slaves. We are taxed without our consent. We are therefore slaves, right? There was a kind of logic um, to this form of uh, political slavery. And Wheatley was was really um, crucial at reminding white readers uh, um, through her poetry and through these occasional pieces such as the letter in the newspaper, which appeared in half a dozen newspapers, I think, in early 1774, unfree Africans uh, were the referent for the sort of symbolic language of liberty in the American Revolution. So, uh, you know, I can't stress enough how important thinking, again, with uh, the sort of political thought of a poet can be. Professor Hunt, let's introduce our friends to the work of Mercy Otis Warren, who was indeed a close friend of the Adamses. They <coughs> fell out after Mercy Otis Warren wrote an attack on Adams' presidency. Uh, she thought he'd betrayed principles of liberty and was more of an anti-federalist. They made up after a wonderful intervention, and, and um, Adams attested to her authorship of the brilliant works that he had encouraged her to write during the revolution. And among other things, she wrote a poem called Political Reverie in 1774, and, and once again, I'll just read just a little bit and then ask you to compare it to the work of Wheatley and Sensibility and in other respects. Long she's forsook her Asiatic throne and leaving Africa's barbarous burning zone on the broad ruins of Rome's haughty power, erected ramparts round fair Europe's shore. I could go on, but give us a sense of the genius of Mercy Otis Warren. Yes, her poem, A Political Reverie, is extremely interesting for a number of reasons. It has an interesting publication history to begin with. Uh, it was published first by her in 1774, so just before the revolution, uh, and was published in a Boston newspaper. And so this made it a, you know, a public political intervention, you know, in the politics of the, of the nascent revolution. She republishes it in 1791 in her uh, poems, dramatic and miscellaneous. And so in 1791, of course, this is the year of the Bill of Rights. Uh, and in 1788, she had published her Observations on the New Constitution, which is one of the most powerful anti-federalist critiques of the new U.S. Constitution um, that had been put in place in 1787 to 88. So uh, Warren is a very important figure in the history of American political thought who is understudied because she is really one of the first savage critics of the deep-seated flaws in the design of the U.S. Constitution by its male framers. And I, I read her as a proto-feminist and anti-federalist critic of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and I think her political reverie, this poem that you quoted from, is really interesting to read alongside her observations on the new Constitution, which was published in 1788. So I'll, I'll give some thoughts, uh, which may lead to more discussion by the other scholars on the panel. First of all, in her political reverie, uh, she, she talks about the ways in which dreams, um, sportive dreams infest all ranks of men. So uh, quite, a, quite a long time before Freud, she theorizes that dreams are just part of the human condition. They're part of who we are. Uh, and she, she applies this to politics. She says that the statesman's dream, uh, in theory, creates new perfect forms to govern broken states. And so politics itself is a kind of dream work for Warren. And uh, the poem, uh, Political Reverie, is such a product of her dream work about what, what American politics ought to be. Uh, she has this dreamlike vision of a Pacific Britannic empire uh, which uh, in the, the quote you, you supplied has some of that ethereal imperial imagery, which is quite striking for Warren, given that we, we think of her as an anti-federalist, uh, so a, a fighter against the imperial power of the federal government uh, that has been imposed upon the people by the U.S. Constitution of 1787. But in this, this poem first uh, published in 1774, she seems to be romanticizing the British Empire and kind of hoping, a bit like Edmund Burke did in his 1775 speech on conciliation with the colonies, that there might be some sort of conciliation possible, uh, you know, that the British Empire might be able to maintain a kind of peaceful relationship with this nascent Republic of America. And in her 
1791 comment on the poem, uh, she says that she wrote it previous to the Civil War, the breaking out of the Civil War. So she refers to the American Revolution as a civil war in 1791, which I think is fascinating. Uh, but she seems to regret that uh, the American Revolution was not more peaceful. Um, and she seems to regret that the bonds between the British people and its, its rich Republican culture um, have been severed or have not been carried out in the way that she hoped they would be um, in the fledgling United States. I think that she has, she uses this poem, A Political Reverie, to give us a vision of a dystopian future, um, the Civil War um, that was the American Revolution. Remember that she, she wrote this in 1774. Uh, and it's also a lament of what has passed, you know, her hope for a, a kind of peaceful Britannic empire that unites the Americans with their motherland. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a dream and yet it's also a dystopia. So uh, in her critique of the constitution in 1788, she set forth three, I think, powerful critiques of the US constitution. I'll just, I'll just quickly summarize them uh, for future discussion. She said that the problem with the constitution, number one, is that it provided no protection for freedom of conscience or the press. Uh, she said that as soon as tyranny took hold, um, there would be no space for even decent remonstrations against tyranny. Uh, number two, she said there were no well-defined limits on the judiciary. They seem to be a boundless ocean that is broken over the chart of the supreme lawgiver. Um, this seems quite poignant today as we, we, we are beginning to debate Roe as if it's a new Plessy and as if it could generate a new civil war. Number three, she said the executive and legislative powers are dangerously blended and lack real checks and balances or separations of power. So she's writing this in 1788. Okay, so by 1791, we have the Bill of Rights. So, so there, an answer to her first, her first charge, there's no protection for freedom of conscience. There's no protection for freedom of the press. We get an answer for that written into the, the Bill of Rights, okay, in the First Amendment. Okay, so there's been, there's been some rectification of the, 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 the potential for tyranny within the U.S. Constitution on her model. But it's not clear to me um, her other charges were addressed uh, in reforms to the U.S. Constitution. And I think we still live with that legacy today. Absolutely fascinating. I do want to ask Professor Kreta, perhaps you mentioned that you thought that Wheatley would agree with future commentators on the Constitution, so would love to get a sense of, of what, who those commentators were and what you thought they'd agree with, um, as well as some, some more reflections about the degree to which Wheatley used her poetry, which anticipated the work of Walker, as Du Bois said, to argue for a fulfillment of the principles of the Declaration, Liberty, and Natural Law? She anticipates certainly the Declaration of uh, Independence, though she never mentions it. And she repeatedly holds the white Americans up and, and uh, criticizes the hypocrisy of calling for freedom, but not including people of African descent. For example, in one of her last poems that we have on the death of General Wooster, in which uh, she sent to Wooster's widow, she ventriloquizes Wooster. She speaks in the dead Wooster's voice in the poem, and she uh, castigates our fellow Americans for fighting for freedom from the British for themselves, but not fighting for freedom for people of African descent. So she repeatedly comes back to this notion of freedom should be for all of us. Again, this notion of the we and the we the people, that people of African descent are as much a part of the we the people as people of European descent. And she also talks about the American Revolution as a civil war. Though she uses the phrase civil contest. Just a few months after she wrote that poem to George Washington, praising Washington, she wrote a letter to a fellow black woman 
And she says, we're just witnesses. We're just on the outside looking in on this civil contest, is the phrase she uses. And as Eric has pointed out, the, the most radical position she takes is probably expressed in that letter that was published in the newspapers, the letter to Samson Ockham. In that letter, we see the transition from her earlier poetry. She had placed the argument, based her argument for the equality of blacks and whites, on it's basically a theologically based argument. In that letter, she talks about our civil and religious liberties, that she's moving towards a natural rights argument that she increasingly embraces in her later poetry. Now, from other poets after Wheatley, well, I'm not thinking of black poets writing about uh, the Constitution, but uh, Thomas Green Fessenden, for example, writes a satiric poem in 1805 in which he's, he's attacking Thomas Jefferson. And he's attacking Jefferson for his involvement with Sally Hemings. But he also explicitly brings up the three-fifths clause and says that Jefferson has supported the three-fifths clause because it empowers people, slave owners like him. In 1846, James Russell Lowell has another satiric poem in which he talks about John C. Calhoun. He has John C. Calhoun speaking and saying uh, that th his position, his pro, very pro-slavery position, is based on the Constitution. When uh, th some of these later poets do pick up the kind of criticism uh, that Eileen was talking about of the Constitution, what has been left out, then after you have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which outlawed slavery and allow, allow voting, et cetera, for people of African descent, or at least men of African descent. Paul Dunbar has a piece on race in Alabama. This is a prose piece, though, even though Dunbar's mainly known as a poet, in which he says that the Constitution is not being obeyed, that the Constitution is being trashed. He's complaining about the economic system that he's, he sees as a second slavery system, the, the peonage of black workers in Alabama, that they're bound by debt to the white owners. So that's, it's as much an enslavement as there had been before. So the Constitution is, it's, the Constitution's not being criticized directly. The Constitution's being held up as what these white enslaved, well, neo-enslavers are abrogating. So the Constitution keeps coming up with both white and black writers, especially the poets in, in the later period. Thank you very much for that, for those citations to Fessenden, Lowell, uh, Dunbar, and others who believe that uh, the system of slavery was abrogating the Constitution. Thanks for reminding us about Jefferson, too. And it may be worth noting here that after, as, as all of you have uh, written, um, after the city of Boston recognized Wheatley as the author of her own poems, Jefferson wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia that she couldn't have been a good poet because black people couldn't be as good poets as white people. The, the virulence of his racism was really brought out by that remarkable exchange. Professor Slaughter, you, there was a third category of how did the reading of poetry prepare the framers of the Constitution and members of the founding generation to champion liberty, which keys into a question from Bonnie Zedek. How do you see current legislators considering poetry or the humanities in general as germane to their work? I know you've written about the famous letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote to Robert Skipworth, where he recommends a reading list which has extensive quotations from books in what he calls the fine arts, ranging from uh, Moliere and Don Quixote to uh, the works of Lawrence Stern, which he considered the greatest lesson on morality ever written, the author of Tristram Shandy. So what kind of poetry did the founding generation read, and why did they think it was important to read poetry and the humanities as preparation for statesmanship? 
It's a great question. And, you know, I mean, I think this session, if it's, if it's done, um, it's done a lot of things, but one of the things that it seems to have done extremely well is just underline how key um, voices like Phyllis Wheatley's and uh, and Mercy Otis Warren's were um, in this period, and just what an audience they had, and what an uh, effect they had. Um, you know, we we tend to think of someone like um, John Adams as not having an idea that was never captured on paper. Um, and then printed and sent to somebody. He reads a pamphlet about, you know, that criticizes the early state constitutions and writes a three-volume treatise in response. Um, But Abigail Adams never published a word during this period. So looking at someone like Wheatley or or Otis, um, and certainly Otis was a correspondent of um, Abigail Adams, when Abigail wrote to John that he should remember the ladies and he laughed it off, she wrote a very upset letter um, directly to Mercy Otis Warren to apprise her. And uh, so I, I do think um, underlining this is is really great. The other thing that, that struck me is highlighting the anti-federal nature of this, you know, not just for Massachusetts, which I think, you know, the, the numbers there were something like 186 to 167, uh, 187 to 168 in terms of the ratification. So maybe 43, 47% um, didn't ratify. The question, I mean, as a as somebody in the humanities, it certainly warms my heart to have a panel like this, um, uh, in which we're pointing people to important um, humanistic texts. I think you know there's still a space for legislators, politicians um, who care deeply about the arts and about um, politics, and who have been bred up through the liberal arts. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. It's a rather alarming thing to register that it's only been Democrats, for instance, who have done inaugural poems as if that was a, a genre that only had a kind of party um, a- association, starting with with um, Kennedy uh, and going through um, through President Biden. But I, I do think um, there's a there's an important uh, civic space for the arts. Uh, and my hope is that this a session like this will inspire people uh, to follow out the links and to read some of these documents. Absolutely. That is the crucial uh, injunction, friends who are watching. You must read the primary texts. They're so inspiring. Uh, you, we quote from them and learn from them. And we've given you lots of links to follow up on. Professor Hunt, your final thoughts. You have introduced us to the important work of Crocker, and um, you called our attention to a song that she wrote. Um, which has an explicitly feminist argument. I'm just, I'm having so much fun reading from it. I'm going to do that and then turn it over to you. But then we'll be as masons free to think and speak with reason. We'll act our part with skill and art bounded by sense and not by treason. Uh, Final thoughts. Wonderful. This is a poem she published in a Boston newspaper in 1784. um, And it was her first published work. Uh, And uh, in the scholarship, there's been this tradition of understanding Crocker as someone who didn't write until she was much older, until the 1810s, when she published the first work by an American um, in uh, the form of a philosophical treatise on women's rights, um, The Observations on the Real Rights of Women, published in Boston in 1818. But it's not true. Crocker was publishing all along. She started publishing her poems in 1784 in Boston newspapers. And so, but she didn't always, she didn't attach her name. She used pseudonyms like like, like the Federalist, as, as was the case for, for a lot of controversial political writing in the period. Whether you're a woman or a man, you often published anonymously or pseudonymously. And she did that. Um, she also published a satire of um, Shay's Rebellion in poetic form in 1786. But this poem, you quote the song, is really important. And I think it, it links to our constitution and it's it, the enduring need to think about what reforms are necessary to make any constitution truly free and equal for everyone who is bounded by its rules. So in this case, this poem celebrates the founding of the first women's Freemasonry Lodge in America by Hannah Mather Crocker. Uh, and she she's celebrating the women's ability to liberate themselves through education within the context of this all-female-led community. Um, and uh, But she's also suggesting that there's been antagonism towards this constitutional endeavor, um, and it's been by the men in the community. And they've, they, in the word treason at the end suggests that some of the men in the Freemasonry Committee thought what they were doing was treasonous. 
um, and uh, either to Freemasonry or maybe to um, American ideals themselves. And Crocker says no. Uh, and she preserved multiple copies of this um, this poem in her manuscript. So we are able to identify it in the Boston newspaper she published it in anonymously in 1784. So I think Crocker and these other women poets, uh, Mercy Iris Warren and Phyllis Wheatley, call us to think about issues of gender and racial um, inequality as we address constitutional issues today, especially in the wake over our public debate over Roe v. Wade. Professor Coretta, last word is to you. If you could leave us with final thoughts and, and maybe some final poems of Wheatley that you'd like to suggest that our friends read. It's also important to keep in mind the times and the context in which these people that we've been talking about were writing. Again, if I go back to Wheatley and the evolution of Wheatley, the, that radical letter that was published in the newspapers was published just a few months after she gained her freedom. So we need to look at, consider what she was writing when she was unfree and what she was able to write when she was free, how her voices changed. If I was going to pick one poem that uh, by her, why not pick the last po published poem or the penultimate published poem by her, uh, Liberty and Peace, which was on the uh, success of the American Revolution that was written at the occasion of it was the signing of the Peace Treaty of Paris, in which she anticipates the glory that's to come to America. Wow, beautiful. I've just already called it up, and I'm instead of reading it, uh, friends who are uh, watching, I'm going to give you the treat of reading Liberty and Peace, a perfect and inspiring ending to a panel, which has spread so much light. It's just encouraged us all to dig in deep, to grow in learning and wisdom by reading uh, the poetry that inspired the founding generations and subsequent generations, uh, seeing how moved they were to express themselves in verse, and perhaps even writing verse ourselves to explore the connections between liberty and freedom and equality and virtue that were so important for the framers. Thank you so much to our wonderful scholars, Eric Slaughter, Eileen Hunt, and Vincent Coretta for a marvelous discussion. Thank you, friends, for taking an hour out of your day to learn and grow uh, in wisdom. And we'll much look forward to seeing you perhaps next week on Bill of Rights Day to explore equality and the Constitution. Uh, thanks again, and uh, see you soon. Bye. This episode was produced by Melody Rawell, Lana Ulrich, John Guerra, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Dave Stotts of the National Constitution Center's wonderful AV team. Visit constitutioncenter.org debate to see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. As always, we'll share these programs on the podcast too, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Find us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.